Welcome back to the program. All eyes are on same-sex marriage in the courts, in state houses, and in the political arena. But on the ground, in the households and families where people live, this is just one manifestation of the many changes in family structure and family relationships. As such, the world of law, and particularly family law, has changed. The ways in which these new, creative, and ever-changing familial bonds are structured, and the complex feedback loop between the legal and loving nature of these relationships, creates whole new ways that we seek legal stability in the face of social and cultural change. At the apex of this effort is my guest, Martha Ertman. Martha Ertman is a law professor at the University of Maryland's Cary Law School. She specialized in family law for two decades, and she's the author of the new book, Love's Promise, How Formal and Informal Contracts Shape All Kinds of Families. Martha Ertman, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Good to have you here. To what extent and how well, really, has the law and the courts been keeping up, keeping pace with so many of the changes we see in the nature of familial relationships? Well, we're pedaling as fast as we can. I, uh, <laughs> I speak from the, uh, from the position of the academy, you know, from the legal academics who are kind of looking on in the ivory tower. <clears throat> Excuse me. But, um, in fact, it's not new that law is catching up. Law is always catching up, and in fact, that nice phrase you had about the feedback loop has been true all along. So social things change, the law catches up, maybe the law gets a little bit ahead, and then the society catches up, and that's what we're seeing right now in the marriage cases. And I think one of the reasons that so many people are talking about the same-sex marriage cases that are about to come down from the United States Supreme Court is that it tells us a lot about how everybody lives, even though there are a tiny fraction of same-sex marriages compared to the tens of millions of opposite-sex marriages. I think we use it as kind of a watch the bouncing ball, Mm -hmm. see how things are changing. But I guess, as I said, it's nothing new. It happened in the 19th century. It happened in the 18th century. This is just our version of that kind of tumult. Of course, the other part of it is, as you allude to, that beyond the same-sex marriage issue, there are changes that are taking place all the time in the nature of relationships and even the nature of, as you say, opposite-sex marriages. Oh, yeah. There's cha- the only constant is change. And in fact, I think as I wrote the book, the big message I wanted people to come away with is something that is not news, which is that love comes in different packages. Um, what is news, so in other words, there's no such thing as the family. There's no one natural family and everybody else is unnatural. From the, I start every family law chapter in the book with a little bit of history to show how old these arrangements are. So people have been living together and having non-marital children for millennia, of course. What's new is that, and of course being gay, um, what's new is that the law is willing to be more open about it. And so what's new is the idea that people have more power than they think to have the people they think of as family be connected that way legally through contracts and these mini contracts I call deals. Of course, there's all sorts of external factors that impact on all of this communications, technology, transportation, mobility. I mean, that's all changed the landscape. 
Well, that's so huge. And I think it may even be the reason why we're even here to begin with. So one of the hugest changes is in the economy. Over the last few decades, we've gone from a manufacturing economy um, to an information economy. And as that has changed, the kind of jobs that are available for guys, good union jobs that could be a living wage for being the, the head of a household in a kind of a patriarchal arrangement, are just dried up. The jobs that are present are the jobs for people who can sit still at a terminal for hour upon hour upon hour. Women, on average, are just a little more willing to do that. And so there's been a bunch of books like Liza Mundy's The Richer Sex that Dr document how increasingly women are making more in proportion. There's still a wage gap. Men overall still make more, especially at the top. But um, in terms of really big Google Earth patterns, um, the switch from a manufacturing economy to a service economy means that there's more equality in heterosexual families generally. And then you can look at same-sex families to say, gosh, how do people arrange a family when there's no person who choose the woman or the man? Because they're both women or both men. And in fact, there's more equal sharing of who clears the table and who makes dinner. And so I think that might be one of the reasons we're all talking about it. The other area where there is so much change, where the law plays an even larger role, is in the whole area of children and parenting. Yeah, that's tremendous. And in fact, contract hits a brick wall when we hit, when we come to contract, which because when we come to kids, because of course you can't buy and sell children. And there's a criminal statute in most jurisdictions that says you can't sell a child, of course. Um, but the fact is, underneath that official story is the unofficial truth, which is that people contractually transfer parental rights and duties all the time. Two and a half percent of the children in the United States today and every day are adopted. There's no such thing as an adoption unless the birth family enters into a legally binding promise, that's what lawyers call a contract, to give up those parental rights and duties. And then an adoptive family signs a legally binding promise, a.k.a. a contract, to take on those rights and duties and become a parent. So we have parented by contract all the time. It's just very controlled and kind of orchestrated. To what extent does the dramatic rise in single-parent households impact the way we have to deal with some of these legal issues? Oh, I think that's tremendous. I mean, so many, as you suggested in your long list of technology and, and transportation and so forth, that, that the, with the 60s and 70s and the rise of the women's movement and the technological innovation of clean, easy birth control and women entering into the wage labor force and getting access to reproductive rights to decide when and whether to have a child, all of those things come together with no-fault divorce, so that means there are more single parents out there generally, which means more women can keep the children that they have non-maritally, which means there are more single mothers, which means it's more socially okay. So when my mom was adopted in 1930, her birth mom probably just had absolutely no choice. She couldn't have supported herself and a child, and it would have been so shaming to be a non-marital mother. Now, of course, if she had gotten pregnant, she might be able to, to do that, to have a job and to, and to be a single parent. 
To what extent is there a nexus that is either successful or, or maybe less successful so far between contract law that you were talking about a little while ago and family law and the way they've had to work together in this brave new world? Right, right. Well, when it, there is when I teach contracts, and I've been teaching contracts for 20 years, one of the cases we talk about is one that many of your listeners may be familiar with, the 1988 Baby M case, where Baby M was a baby who was born through surrogacy. And while we no longer have that kind of surrogacy arrangements where we had uh, one mother as both the genetic mother and the gestational mother, one woman playing both those roles. Now, you Usually it's what's called gestational surrogacy, a lot of it happening in California, where there's one woman who's the egg donor, another woman who carries the child, and then the dad is going to be providing sperm, but he's not usually in that battle if there's any disputes. Um, so, in fact, those courts had to decide, and courts across the country had to decide the extent to which this is a family law question, in which case you look at the best interest of the child, or is it a contracts question, in which case you look at the intent of the people who set this all into motion. In New Jersey, they treat it like a family law question. So if you're doing a surrogacy arrangement, don't do it in New Jersey if you want it to be enforceable. California treats it more of a contract. That's why there's a tremendous reproductive technology industry in California because at the highest levels, California law has said this is more like a contract. We'll honor the intent of the people who brought this child into being. Is there a potential problem? I mean, it sort of comes back to something we were talking about earlier with mobility and transportation and technology today and people being able to move much more freely around the country and and seeing the laws being as bifurcated as they are between the states. Oh, if only it were bifurcated, there would just be two approaches. <laughs> in fact, the metaphor I use in my book is of a patchwork. Um, so there are good things and bad things about everything, and certainly about law. Um, people, there's an old phrase that we use a lot in law, the laboratory of democracy. So family law is mostly state law. And so it's going to be different. The age of consent to engage in sexual conduct might be different in Missouri and Kansas and California. Um, and that's just the idea is with all of these different ideas out there, we all talk to each other as states and then ideally we come to the best solution. And um, people travel, it's called, re people travel so much to take advantage of these different rules and to work around restrictive rules in their home jurisdiction that the phrase reproductive tourism is used. And many people from other countries come to the United States because the United States has one of the most free regimes where people can choose when, whether, and how to build a family. And what is the biggest problem that you see out there on the landscape right now in terms of, of the law and the courts keeping up with some of these changes we've been talking about? Oh, my goodness. You know, I think in many ways the biggest problem is that people want the law to be more involved. I, The way I look at looking at 
at the cases that have come down and the legislation that has been passed is that mostly people work these things out fine by themselves. And when the legislatures get involved, you have things like the non-consensual vaginal probe. You have restrictions on birth control. That when the legislator is asked to decide how other people create their families, I don't think they do a good job. I think people themselves do a better job. So the biggest danger is that legislators and courts will heed the call of many academics for meddling the way that European countries have meddled in these decisions. And I would say enough is enough. This is not, we have enough already. We have consumer protections that keep markets for gametes, like through sperm banks, um, safe. And there's very little litigation and people mostly work stuff out. Is the real issue, though, not so much the law, but the underlying political issues that wreak havoc with a lot of this? Um, well, what's so interesting is the patterns researchers like Naomi Khan have found out really interesting patterns where um, red states are counterintuitively states with very high divorce rates. They have high divorce rates, high non-marital birth rates, in part because there's less sex ed and they're more likely to get pregnant um, um, without being married and more likely to marry young, which makes them more likely to divorce. Um, so, so what's so interesting is that you're right that the law and politics have a complex relationship. It's, it's your phrase of feedback loop comes back to me again. Um, but I think that they're not, they're not the same and not entirely different. Of course, the law of Alabama is going to reflect the, you know, on the ground politics of what it takes to be a judge in Atlanta and what it takes to get into the legislature and stay. On the other hand, there's a floor under which the law cannot go. You cannot force people to work below minimum wage. You cannot um, come in and grab a child out of somebody's family without making sure that you've protected the genetic parents' um, constitutional rights before you take their kids away. So I think that there's a, there's a baseline that the Constitution gives us that the individual political regimes cannot go below. Do we need to be looking at some of this on a more federal level at this point? Oh, that's a great question. It, I'm not a huge fan of the federal. I bet you've noticed that. Um, to me, I'm very interested in the families I call Plan B. So they may be created through reproductive technology. They may be created through adoption. They may be people who live together. I'm interested in these not most common. Plan A is the most common arrangement. And, of course, the rules are made with Plan A in mind. They have to be. This is the, makes the most sense for, for administering them. But plan B is there. As I said, two and a half percent of children are adopted. That affects a lot of people. My instinct is that when you get a really big group like the federal government, that Congress is not winning any awards for reaching any kind of conclusion, let alone good conclusions lately. So I think it's easy to say there ought to be a law. And I think it's much harder, harder to achieve a good law, easier to convince a small group of people in your home state to get the kind of law that I think will actually reflect what people, what's good for, for families. But are we better off with, with mediocre laws that perhaps are consistent throughout the country as opposed to this patchwork that you were talking about before where people basically can state shop based on their relationships? 
Oh, yeah, but we've been state shopping from the beginning. I mean, if you don't like that context, then, in fact, we've got to just undo the whole federal balance of federal and state power. So that's that's a very very big question. Um, I'm I'm tempted to give the the kind of a flip <laughs> answer to quote Emerson about a foolish consistency in the hobgoblin of of uh, of uh, foolish minds because it seems to me that if things are changing and they are as you pointed out as that the family families I should say are changing all the time and love is coming in all kinds of packages and the law is increasingly recognizing these different forms then in fact the foolish thing to do would be to pretend that you can get one rule just like technology is running ahead of law at about a hundred miles an hour the rule the evaluations, the continuing evolution of how people connect will prevent one rule nationally from really working for everybody. One size fits all is tempting. It seems really easy to manufacture, but when's the last time that one size fits all shirt actually did fit everybody? Do we get to a point where we have something in the law that's equivalent to what developers talk about when they, when they have a piece of property and it's completely built out and there's no more room for anything else, there's no more discussion about building. Do we get to a legal point where we know what all the possible familial permutations are and, and that there's a finite landscape and that we can better address it within that context? Well, if there is, we haven't reached it yet. Um, part of what happens in these conversations is that we as a nation decide who counts as family. Right now, we're moving toward recognizing same-sex couples as family. Um, and it may well be the if, you, if the scholars are appropriate uh, wind veins, weather veins for where family law is heading, the next questions will be non-romantic affiliation. So let's say you had, um, I just talked, I gave a talk last night and a man was at the talk who is caring for his adult mother who's suffering for dementia. They are ordinarily not treated as family for purposes of family law for most purposes. What would it mean to extend that as more and more middle-aged children are caring for their um, adult, increasingly aged parents? So I think that there are many ways that it'll continue to evolve. Having come out myself as a lesbian in the 1980s when the it could be a crime to be gay and then having been able to get married, legally married in my home state of Massachusetts when I'm in my 40s, that shows how much things can change. I never guessed when I came out in the 1980s that I would be able to legally marry. So my guess is there's a lot we haven't even thought of yet. And of course, the, the flip side of this, you mentioned divorce a couple of times. As we have all of these new kinds of relationships and these new kinds of arrangements, we have to deal with the dissolution of all these different kinds of arrangements on the other side. Oh, of course, you know, and the, but the question is, what is the, what is the prime directive as we learned in Star Trek? You know, the prime directive I came to believe in writing this book was that was connection. The prime directive is to find social connections and for the law and society to support them. I personally believe and based on my life of living in the world that everybody shows up at work at 
school, at the grocery store, in conversations over the backyard fence. They show up better. They're better selves, healthier, happier, more stable if they have social connections. Um, there's a data that just having one good friend at work means you call in sick less frequently. So the question is, how can law support connections? By definition, some of those connections won't last. We want to have a rule that recognizes the ones that are the most stable and supports them. So I do think marriage should continue to have more rights and duties than living together, but that that doesn't mean the alternative to full throttle usness, as I put it in the book, mm-hmm. is being total strangers. It should be kind of a continuum with a la carte selections that people can weigh can make along the way between strangers on one end and full throttle sharing of money and decision making and everything else on the on the marriage end. Do you see some real creative work being done in this area? Uh, People that are taking on some of these ideas that you talk about in Love's Promise and really exploring them in this legal and social context. Oh, absolutely. It is a, a, a deeply creative process to decide how, um, the the intimate nature of our lives unfold. So I it was a creative process for me. I said I'd come out in the 80s. I found myself single at 38. I thought, gosh, I don't want to have a baby all by myself. So I called up a gay friend, asked him if he wanted to have a baby together. He was kind of quiet for a minute. Then he asked what I had in mind. And, and I, I said, I explained. And, and he said, let's keep talking. And we kept talking. And it was through those conversations we required a creative series of decisions about how two friends who live in two different cities could have a child together. Now we end up putting it in a four-page document that's in the back of Love's Promises so people can see it's not rocket science. And that 11 years into the game, he and I are still getting together. In the meantime, I met a woman and I married her. She's a second mother to our child and he recently married a man. So we all get along. And I think that the myth is that the stories of fracture and disappointment that end up on the um, on the news and in case reporters are the only truth. In fact, there are a lot of people leading very dull lives who have unusual arrangements that work out just fine. Does the cost involved on the legal side of this create a barrier for some people in this framework? Oh, well, it is. It's absolutely true. That's another reason I wrote the book. I've been writing about family contracts for decades, and I thought people need to know. People are so afraid of going to a lawyer that it's going to be so big and so complicated. I think in many ways you can do quite a bit of it yourself. While I cannot, of course, give legal advice in my book (laughs) or over the radio, I can say that there are books like um, Fred Hertz's No Low Press, books about cohabitation agreements with forms, where rather than, if you're too daunted or too um, financially strapped to go to a lawyer, there are a lot of places online where, and at the bookstore, where you can find forms, because I think people should not let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And what's good is sitting down and saying, who are we to each other, to think about what might happen if we split up, say, and then try to make that less bad. Um, and reduce the, the harms that can come from that. 
Martha Ertman. Her book is Love's Promises, How Formal and Informal Contracts Shape All Kinds of Families. Martha, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. 